This podcast is brought to you by Minimal Productions. Producer Jim Mintz. Bail is refused. You're out of order! If it pleases the court. To adopt this affirmation, please say the words, I do. I do. Nothing further from this Given the serious nature of this offence, this case is dismissed. Welcome to The Wigs, I'm your host Jim Minns. In this episode, The Wigs dive into three topics. First up is a discussion of a brand new provision in the New South Wales Bail Act 2013, Section 22B. This provision came into effect in late June and provides that people who have pleaded guilty or have been found guilty by a court of a crime should be remanded in custody immediately if they will ultimately receive a jail term when they are sentenced, unless there are special or exceptional circumstances justifying the bail continuing. Secondly, The Wigs discuss a High Court case that has reaffirmed the fundamental structural separation in the Australian Constitution between judicial and executive power. In Alexander v. Minister for Home Affairs, the High Court struck down Section 36B of the Australian Citizenship Act on the basis that citizenship stripping as a punishment for misconduct could not be done by a minister and could only occur as a criminal punishment following a conviction by a court. Wig Stephen Lawrence was one of the barristers who appeared for the applicant and he provides some interesting insights into the course of the litigation. Lastly, the Wigs look at the new decision of Justice Hamill in DPP v. Peckham where a decision of a magistrate was quashed on the basis that the case proceeded in the absence of the prosecutor and on the basis of no charge or evidence. This amounted to a fundamental breach of procedural fairness and proper process. The case took only three minutes to be heard in the Dubbo local court and the Whigs kick off the discussion by voicing the entire transcript on the show. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Whigs. It is fantastic to be here again for another month of legal fiction. I mean, fact. <laughs> I'm just... Thought I'd throw that in there. No? Nothing? Not tonight? Okay, no worries. That's fine. Uh, We've got another uh, roundtable extravaganza with you with the fabulous three, and myself included. I'm going to start with Felicity Graham. Welcome to the show, Felicity. Thank you, Jim. It's great to have you here. It's so great to be here. Big couple of weeks for you. Huge. We will get to that at the end of the show. Okay, fantastic. Stephen Lawrence, thank you for joining us. Hey, mate. Good to be here. Straight out of COVID isolation. Poor bugger. Good Not to, have to you talk here. about fun things yet. No, right, right, right. You might be sort of, yeah, scraping at the bottom. <laughs> but it's great to have you here in person. Emmanuel Kirkasharian. Jim, I was at a Wigs adjacent event recently where it was alleged that I was the person who swore the most. Oh, fantastic. I saw that I allegation love being hearing made. This. Yeah, and it was made quite strongly. Mm. And look, I don't want to great. get into an argument about After it. After a few wines, it was made. Gee whiz. And, but what I do want to say is that we're going to institute a swear jar. Oh, yeah, good idea. All right. Yeah, oh, well, I and mean, the, I say and, that and now. And at, at the end of the season, we'll donate whatever's in the swear jar to... to uh, Philippa Graham, maybe? <laughs> sure. <laughs> Is this Scott, the person Scott's making the accusation? The <laughs> I didn't say that. I Look, didn't say that was the person who made the allegation. I, whoever made the allegation, thank you. Thank you from the bottom of my heart because I've been wearing that... You know, unfair crown for a long time, so I appreciate that. And Manny, you were talked clean up your about act. as the allegation was made, mate. Just so yeah. you're aware, I'm it's sure just I was that mentioned you at the Wigs adjacent event. I, I think I was mentioned, obviously, <laughs> but I wasn't obviously the winner of this p- mantle that that's been this award that's been going around. Well, perhaps it was your conspicuous ab- absence from the event. Anyway, if I wasn't there, then you, you would totally throw me <laughs> under the bridge, wouldn't you? Anyway, ladies and gentlemen, let's embark with the show. We're going to start with uh, the topic number one tonight, which is I haven't been reading my emails. But it's from the Manual Cooker Show, and I do know that. Take it away, sir. Uh, the topic is the new amendments to the Bail Act in New South Wales. Yes, I um, knew that. Let me start this way. Once upon a time, at half time in criminal trials, that is, say, at the close of the Crown case, if there was a strong Crown case, punters would have their bail refused, and they'd be forced to run their defence 
whilst in custody, probably at the worst time of the trial. Uh, that was sensibly stopped as a practice. Uh, but it's often the case that at the end of a trial, if the accused is found guilty, an application to detain the accused is made. Now, traditionally speaking, if you haven't breached your bail and you've waited the 18 months to three years, that the ridiculous amount of time that it takes to come to trial and you've turned up at your trial, generally speaking, you would be granted bail or your bail would continue uh, pending your sentence, in part because it's necessary to do that to prepare your sentence. You've got to get reports from psychologists and doctors and so on. A month ago, or in the last month or couple of months, the Daily Telegraph got a little bit upset that a couple of people had been granted conditional bail or had the conditional bail continued after they'd been found guilty of committing offences. One of them was a 67-year-old person by the name of Duncan who had been found guilty of eight counts of sexually touching a girl. The other was a 78-year-old uh, person by the name of Van Gestel who was found guilty or convicted for a series of historical offences from the 1970s involving children and another individual uh, who'd also been convicted of sexual offences against a child. So the Daily Telegraph gets in a bit of a huff and as is too often the case, the government's response is, well, we're going to change the law. Uh, so they changed the law and they added the new section to the Bail Act, the New South Wales Bail Act, Section 22, Capital B, which says basically that after a person has been found guilty, uh, they which are is to, defined to include pleading guilty as well, isn't it? That's right. Yeah. yeah. So conviction um, includes a plea of guilty and also includes a finding of guilt. Uh, and what it says, what it tries to say whether or not it says it is or not not quite clear we'll come to that in a minute but basically you should be refused bail unless there are special or exceptional circumstances that exist that justify a decision to grant bail or dispense with bail uh yeah if, so if, if there's a precondition sorry yes if that if you, quote, will be sentenced to imprisonment to be served by full-time detention. So what the provision is basically saying is that if you are going to go to jail, then you should go to jail as soon as you either plead guilty or you are found guilty by a jury or a, or a magistrate or a judge. It's interesting to compare this to countries like America that are not so different where your date to commence your sentence is sometimes set a month or two two after you're sentenced. Yeah. And you, you're expected to report to the prison on that date. Yeah. Like this idea that there is some special significance behind the idea that you go to jail immediately, I just don't really understand what that's based on. Well, it's, it's, it's pure politics. There's no sort of... <clears throat> You've got to remember that in the background to this, there is always the assessment of risk that is going on. Yeah, that happens. Right? Anyway. So if you're going to run away, if you're going to commit another offence, then you're going to be refused. If, if the court has formed the view that there is the, that those risks are there and they're significant, you're going to be jailed anyway. So this is really, it's about the look. It's about 
we need these people to go in straight away. Mm. And there's sort of an inhumanity about it in the sense that often people are going to go away for a long time. Perhaps we want to give them a week or two to set their affairs in order, you know, after a trial in particular where things are chaotic. Uh, perhaps we want them to be able to go and get the doctors or the mental health professionals and so on to look after them before they go in uh, and lessen the burden on the state. Mm. Mm. You know, It raises bias issues as well in my mind. So you have a judicial officer, they're the trial judge, they preside over the trial, the person gets found guilty or they're a magistrate sitting in the local court, a person just entered a plea of guilty. They're then faced with a detention application by the prosecutor pursuant to Section 22B on the basis that the prosecutor attempts to satisfy the judicial officer that the accused will be sentenced to imprisonment to be served by full-time detention. The magistrate or judge determines that question and refuses them bail and they determine that question in the absence of, inevitably in the absence of, a fulsome evidentiary picture in terms of what might be put in mitigation on sentence. But they've made this decision. So what does the fair-minded lay observer think when he comes to sentence about whether the judicial officer maintains an open Mm -hmm. mind about the question of whether they should impose full-time imprisonment as the actual sentence disposition. I mean, it's a huge issue in the marginal mm. case. I know. think in a kind of strict legal sense, though, wouldn't the fact that the statute requires that exercise mean that it wouldn't give rise to a reasonable apprehension of bias in the sense of, like, vitiating the decision? Because mm. isn't I- it, like, a necessity issue? The statute compels you to take that course. Though I suppose you could then refer the matter to a different judge if you felt the bias arose or magistrate. There, this applies in summary cases too. Your jurisdiction is invoked, so you have to make a decision. But there are plenty of circumstances in which the fact that a judicial officer has made a decision precludes them from making a further Another decision one. on mm. the same issue. So, um, And obviously the Bail Act requires the decision to be determined on the balance of probabilities, whereas at the actual determination of the sentence outcome it's not not applying that balancing test that balance test but mm, it it, I, i think it at least raises a concern one of the judgments i can't remember which one it might have been the judgment of justice garling in van gestel uh makes the point that this is going to be or this may be a problem that you know judges may find themselves in effect conflicted out Mm. um so interestingly the two people who the daily teller who who effectively this law was passed to target were granted bail notwithstanding the fact that that you know that the dpp took it up and the supreme court said no we're not refusing bail in van gestel's case um it was because they could not be satisfied that they, he would inevitably be sentenced to full-time imprisonment. Uh, in Duncan's case, um, the Director of Public Prosecutions mm. conceded that the circumstances were special or exceptional. Mm. So in Duncan's case, so that was a case where there were a number of complainants and 
there were there were mixed verdicts in relation to the complainants at trial, but at least in respect of three complainants, there were some guilty verdicts. And the, the trial prosecutor actually made a detention application at the end of the trial as well, which was mm. refused. Um, then the DPP brought proceedings before the Supreme Court Justice Bellew determined them, but in those proceedings the DPP ended up conceding that the circumstances in relation to his health amounted to special or exceptional Mm. circumstances. And the prosecutor got really attacked for that, including by Ray Hadley. And so, anyway, the In a way that that was quite ironic in the sense that uh, he's a friend of mine, so I can say this. He's not a prosecutor who's, like, renowned to be a bleeding heart or anything. Mm. So to be uh, attacked by Ray Hadley, I think, might have um, surprised quite a few people that knew him. Don't they all hang out, those non-bleeding hearters? Didn't wasn't there a memo sent around on the WhatsApp chat not that he's one of ours? Not to yeah, I'm not sure, but yeah, the message didn't get through to Ray. Yeah, Hattie. come on, Ray, <laughs> you're attacking your own. It is very odd that the director of public prosecutions would take those steps to run a bail application <clears throat> only to make that concession. Well, there's an there's another was, chapter. Was made on the hop though, wasn't it? There's another I chapter think. in the in the book that we haven't yet seen because next week the CCA is going to be hearing fresh detention applications by the DPP in both Van Gestel and Duncan's case. Um, So the Court of Criminal Appeal will hear them on the 1st of August and they're not in the nature of an appeal. They're a a fresh de novo application Mm. brought by the director. Mm. So I appeared in one of these, which is called AP, and he'd been on bail, I think, for almost six months after being found guilty by a jury. He was to be sentenced two and a half weeks after the application uh, was made. So I said to Justice Bellew that he should decline to hear the application under Section 72, I think it is, of the Bail Act, where it's frivolous, vexatious, or an application without substance. Mm. And my basic argument was... In circumstances where the period um, of remand is six months, where there's like 23 days left, that the whole application just shows a lack of restraint and it's an application without substance because what is the compelling public interest for all of a sudden those 23 days to be in custody when the entire other period hasn't been? And Justice Bell, you did not like that argument and didn't accede to it. Mm. Um, Another issue arose, which I think arose um, in the other two that you talked about, Manny, about whether Section 30 of the Interpretation Act meant that the amendment doesn't apply mm. uh, because it was a, would be to apply um, a retrospective amendment to apply it to pending proceedings. And I thought that was a pretty good argument, actually, but, uh, yeah, that didn't find favour either. Mm. Um, and I sort of narrowed the argument to the to say that that it's not necessarily inapplicable in the sense that it could never apply to him, but the existing grant of bail, unless he breaches it and then the matter falls to be redetermined, is protected by Section 30 because it's something continued or started under the Act pre-amendment and it constitutes a right or liberty for the purpose of Section 30, i.e. this existing grant of bail. Mm. Uh, but he ruled against that as well. Mm. 
I need to correct something I said because the two <coughs> cases before the Court of Criminal Appeal next week are actually Van Gestel, as I said, and a case of Day, which was oh, Day's going back. a decision right. of Justice Garling in the Supreme Court. Um, Mr Titus Day was convicted recently at a trial of, I think, 50 fraudulent embezzlement offences. He... Um, worked for... Guy Sebastian. Exactly. Guy Sebastian. And Justice Garling determined the detention application that was brought in the Supreme Court on the basis that the DPP had failed to establish on balance that a sentence of full-time imprisonment would inevitably be imposed on sentence. So it's that. It's that matter and Van Gestel that are going to the Court of Criminal Appeal next week. So imagine you're a local court magistrate and you grant someone bail because you think that you might not send them to jail. The DPP goes to the Supreme Court where a single justice agrees with you and then the DPP goes to the Court of Criminal Appeal where three justices of the Court of Criminal Appeal say... In our view, on balance of probabilities, this person is going to go to jail. And then it's three weeks later and it's in front of you and you're a magistrate and someone's arguing to you this person should obviously not go to jail, might not go to jail. What an immense amount of pressure. Or should get an Mm. intensive corrections order, which is a term of imprisonment but not full time. Yeah. What an immense amount of pressure to put on lower court judges. Mm. Is there any other provisions that do a similar thing? I can't too readily think of any other provision that requires that level of prejudgment um, of criminal proceedings. No. I mean... It's unusual. With bail, of course, there's an assessment of the likelihood of, you know, how strong the prosecution case is and things like that. But it's not so... F- it's not this one issue, which is, yeah. are they going to go to jail? It's it's one... That's only one aspect of a bail determination. I mean, it would be generally. tantamount to asking a bail court to ask the question, am I satisfied that this person will be found guilty? Yeah. yeah. And you, that it's hard to imagine that. Mm. Yeah. There is this tendency, I think, and it comes up particularly in the local court, where someone has been refused bail for whatever reason. There may be <clears throat> legitimate bail concerns that give rise to that decision happening or, or not, but that's the state of affairs. And at sentence for what is then ultimately a very minor offence, there's this tendency, I think, to say, oh, well, I'm going to give you time served Mm. and impose a prison sentence at that point just because of the fact of having spent time in custody and accumulated that time rather than saying, well, actually, objectively, this offence doesn't warrant any type of custody uh, I'm going to give you a fine, I'm going to give you a short bond or whatever. Mm. But there's this, I think, partly a desirability to finalise the matter in a way that then relinquishes the person of any further impost upon them and their liberty. Um, but also just, I think, this almost quite pragmatic approach. But I've always been quite uncomfortable with that Uh And I think it highlights how important bail decisions are in Mm. the ultimate disposition of a matter because 
being bail refused can in this really quite insidious way, I think, be quite determinative of what happens. Yeah. And, it, and Change it, the outcomes overall. And then yeah, sits and on it, your record. Mm. And, and then it's on your record that you got, you know, three months jail for a contravene AVO, which was actually, mm. you know, delivering Christmas presents to your kids when you mm. shouldn't have been at the home um, and didn't involve in any violence. And But you, you ended up bail refused on it. Yeah, and then the next time you come for bail or you're charged or you're convicted, the magistrate or the judge says, well, you did three months for your last one, mm. you're going up now, you're going to do six months. So it's – I mean, the other problem that I foresee is ev- almost every indictable matter begins in the local court. There's this EAGP stream, earlier quote-unquote appropriate guilty plea stream that's designed to encourage people to plead guilty in the local court. The moment you do that – you run into the application or the potential application of this provision. Now, let's say you're a punter who is looking at 12 months imprisonment or some other form, like you're on that edge. You may The best advice to you may well be do not plead guilty mm. because you will be jailed by a magistrate, whereas you can get up to the district court and sure you're going to lose X percent of your discount, but the practical matter is you're less likely to be imprisoned. Yep. Or you'll be less. You'll be in prison for a shorter time whilst your sentence is determined by the district court, rather than the long period of time you'll otherwise do. And even, even in, in cases, the local court, I think matters that go to finality in the local court, which is something like ninety-three percent of criminal proceedings in this state, ninety-five percent, something like that, huge proportion. Clients aren't going to want to plead guilty, yeah. and yeah. lawyers will have to give them the advice about Section Twenty-Two B and the way that it could operate on them. And the way that even if the term of imprisonment that they might receive is one month or two months or two months or six months, if that's in the realm of possibilities as something that's the magistrate's going to be thinking, well, I'm going to be doing that, then it's going to completely frustrate the aims of the system to have people plead guilty and, um, and be dealt with. Mm. I guess this is the importance of the reasoning of Garling um, um, and Duncan, right, where he construes the word will and essentially draws it or interprets it to require a very high standard of satisfaction. Mm. So he, he sort of says, look, this is not a provision that is triggered when the court is satisfied on the balance of probabilities that the person should go to jail or might go to jail or could go to jail or wouldn't be able almost to certainly me, will. Almost certainly. It's, it's even higher than that. Um, so you would hope that, that, you know, those sort of interpretations would come to the fore and that local court magistrates, for example, considering strictly indictable matters, when they're not going to have any of the evidence before them that ultimately will determine if the person will go to jail, are going to be pretty careful in applying the provision. But... I think there was would have been there was a very good argument to not apply this in summary matters. I mean, it wasn't summary matters that triggered, you know, the supposed mm. community concern. You know, the com- community concern was about strictly indictable sex matters. I and just once think, you were in the trial <clears throat> court, really. Once you're in the trial court, yeah. But the lack of procedural safeguards in the local court, I can see this being used to inflict quite a lot of injustice. Um, and where's in the funding? Certain summary matters. Where's the funding for all those people who are on legal aid who now have to have counsel turn up to defend their bail application at the time of committal? Yeah. 
I'm sure the government set aside three million dollars for that. Not likely. Yeah. Some of the bar will accept that, and many punters will just go bar refused mm. as a result. But also interestingly, I'd forgotten about this, but the law is still that at the time of your committal, and this is section one oh nine of the Criminal Procedure Act, you are to be committed, whether for trial or for sentence. An accused person who's committed for trial or sentence in any committal proceedings must be committed to a correctional centre by a magistrate until the sittings of the court at which the person is to be tried. That's the law. Or until the accused person is otherwise released by operation of law. Yes. In other words, the bailout. So the bailout. It's the starting point, though, isn't it? It's interesting. But nobody applied. I've never seen that applied in my time. Um, But they're really, I think 109 operates as a trigger for a bail, in effect, a bail consideration Mm. and probably a correctly applied and a bail application, a release application Mm. um, by, I I hesitate to say it because I don't want it to happen, but that's probably probably what it means. Um, Other interesting cases include a case called LM, uh, Mm. 2022 New South Wales Supreme Court 987, where he's on a, Justice Danji found that the provision does not apply to children who are in the children's court because the children's court doesn't sentence people to imprisonment but rather to control orders. Uh, interesting. So yeah. that should also apply to children being dealt with in a higher court where the court exercises the jurisdiction as if the children's, the court, children's court and court, yeah. imposes a control order. Yeah, or can exercise Or can. It. Yeah, that's right. Mm. Um We've done AP. One of the things that I found really interesting was in Day, uh, where the judge pointed out, I think it's Justice Garling in Day, pointed out the drafting, quote-unquote, infelicities <laughs> in 22B, um, where... They always talk about drafting infelicities rather than drafting felicities. That's, that's true. Well, because you never see drafting felicities. That's, that's the problem. <laughs> this is also the first time I've heard the expression. Infelicities. Yes. Right. Um, Is there truly infelicities of drafting here? I thought they sought to achieve exactly what they achieved. Can I just ask, what does infelicities mean? Felicity means happiness. Something poorly expressed. So So, so some drafting unhappiness. Isn't felicity felicity like a good thing that happens? Like a lucky happiness? Felicitations is like congratulations, right? Oh, okay. That's true. Uh, Yeah. So infelicity is like not a good thing. Okay, so it's Jane not, Austen includes the word felicity oh, okay. in a lot of her so novels. So it's like it a pride happiness. and prejudice thing. All oh, right, okay, okay, yeah. It's like a pride and prejudice. All right, thing. so it's like so it's what like does Kingsbury Moon. <laughs> have to get back to you on <laughs> yeah. that. So, so your parents went to Woodstock, obviously. No, okay, so Manny, go, go ahead. Sorry, they organised Woodstock. The, oh, the origin of your name. It's <laughs> My mum could organise Woodstock <laughs> in three and no a half doubt. days. No, but no Woodstock doubt. 99, apparently. Which the yeah. All right, move on, Manny. Please, felicitations, please. In okay. in felicitations. No, no. I, I, in felicities. In felicities. I'm not so. In answer to your question, Stephen, I'm not sure that they meant to exclude children. I suspect mm. that was a stuff up. Yeah. Um, they probably overlooked kids. But. Here's the, here's I don't know. I think it's pretty deliberate use of language of imprisonment. Well, Hadley drafted it, didn't he? So what does he think? I reckon speak. I reckon this is a sleeper from Speakman. I reckon this is like Greg Smith's right to silence amendment all those years ago where Speakman's like, right, okay, uh, Premier and Cabinet, you want this change. And then he sat down and thought, what is the highest state of satisfaction that I can possibly put in this thing? Will. No court's ever going to be satisfied with that. 
Well, I mean, I hope that's the advice that he got. I mean, I, I understand that kind of advice is sometimes given, although there's no criminal law review division. Mm. And I don't know what's going on with drafting in New South Wales with respect, but <laughs> the, here's, here's, what, here's what subsection 1B says. A court, on a detention application made in relation to the accused person, must refuse bail unless it is established that special or exceptional circumstances exist that justify the decision. I have read that subparagraph so many times trying to work out what it means it's, in terms of yeah that justify the decision. Which decision? Well, exactly. I mean, well, the decision to detain them on the face of it, read literally, you have to refuse bail unless there are special exceptional circumstances that justify you refusing bail. Granting bail, isn't it? So no. on a release application... Read, read A first. Read so, A. Uh, yeah, that's what I'm reading. On a release yeah. application made by the accused person, must not grant bail or dispense with bail, comma, unless it is established that special or exceptional circumstances exist that justify the decision. So presumably the decision to grant bail or dispense with bail. Yeah, yeah. And then that's on fine. a detention application made in relation to the accused person, must refuse bail unless it is established that special or exceptional circumstances exist that justify the decision. So it's referring back to the decision to grant bail, but it's extremely poorly worded. What that's, infelicitous, that's an infelicity it's, it's, of expression. It, it Thank you, Justice Garland. What does, the, what does the New South Wales Shadow Attorney General have to say about this? Labor supported it wholeheartedly. Yeah, so Michael Daly's the Shadow AG. He supported it. And didn't, as I recall, propose any amendments, which is a pity. Like, we all get how complex politically this stuff is and when was the last time a Labor opposition opposed anything criminal law related that a government put forward. But I would have thought that some pretty worthwhile amendments could have been thrown up. Yeah, I just thought there was some drafting help, (laughs) some bipartisan drafting help. How about this? Don't rush things through Parliament in three days or mm. however long this thing took. Send it to a committee, at least. Well, I mean, give at least people time to comment. Give the drafters time to draft such that they don't make the mistake that they made in 1B. Mm. Consult brought more broadly right? than the Daily Telegraph and Ray Hadley. Yeah. You know, and maybe consul- consult people who practice and judicial officers who might be called upon to make decisions. Yeah. You know, wigspodcast at gmail.com. Just yeah. send us We're a line, here. guys. Defence Lawyers New South Wales... I mean, I'm, I'm sure they consulted the Bar Association. But Are you sure th- about that? I am sure. Yeah, they did. I they think. did. Yeah. But when I say they consulted them, they gave them all of, you know, a couple of days, not even, to comment mm. on this thing, which is not consultation. It's not enough to actually go through and see the errors in drafting and think through. Oh, you, you see, something like this has got implications all the way through, as we've some of which we've discussed, it's unthought of. It'll be another mechanism of the law that contributes to the mass incarceration of Indigenous people, yeah, for sure. Sure. 100%. It will because poor criminal records, which are obviously a feature of overrepresentation as a sort of syndrome, are going to be used to say, well, you went in last time, so how am I possibly not going to bin you this time? That's right. In circumstances where what is being foreclosed there is that the lawyer might turn up at the sentence hearing and say, well he or she shouldn't have been bin before and here's the criminality involved in those matters and these matters and makes an argument that is not foreseen at the time. And what are you going to do in places like Broken Hill and Wilcannia where it's the same magistrate 
who's hearing these things, and so you're bound to make your sentencing submissions in front of the person who's already made their mind up. I think bias applications could be quite important as test cases here. I think that's right. Yeah. I mean, it's just... The, the, the most horrif- horrifying thing about this is that it is genuinely, purely political. Like, there is no risk to the community that is served by this. There's only punishing people immediately because <clears throat> that makes a certain portion of the community feel, feel safer. Feel not even safer. I think it's retributive. It's we don't let pedophiles have a two days out of prison after we after they've been convicted. Yeah. And you know what? I'm not necessarily someone who has any sympathy for people who've committed horrendous crimes, but why create a provision that really messes up or, you know, touches on so many different aspects of the criminal justice system. If you really wanted to deal with that issue and say we want to be retributive in that way, take the time and draft a decent provision. Mm. And it undermines the system's capacity to deliver meaningful, just outcomes when it comes to the final resolution of a case because that period on bail pre-sentence for people who are on bail pre-sentence, of course, many people are not, but for that period, it can be so important to be able to then collect the evidence, prepare the person to be able to give oral evidence in their own case to Obtain be able reports, to during speak COVID, to family impossible. and facilitate all of the preparation of the case that then facilitates justice at the end of the day. And the person might still go to jail... But it's just the, the knee-jerk reaction to a few cases, and I'm sure the Daily Telegraph was not abreast of the the particular details <clears throat> that applied to these cases and where discretionary decision-making like bail really sat in terms of what was an appropriate outcome to either continue bail or or allow um, bail post conviction, it's just yeah. uh, it's just so frustrating. And if you step away from pedophilia and you step into the sorts of criminal, there are criminal offences where people go to jail for long periods of time, where their criminality you don't excuse it, but you can kind of have some sympathy for their situation mm. and their relationship with their families. And the people who depend on them and so on. I mean, people you know? go to jail for stealing from shops. Right. Like, it's a far yeah. cry from pedophilia. Yeah. And the idea that they shouldn't get the opportunity to get their orders in a fair and, you know, take care of their children and so forth. And those things are unlikely to be considered special or exceptional. Um, and Bellew makes that point, just as Bellew makes that point mm. in one of these decisions where he says, well, that would be common to all to all accused persons in that situation. Yeah. What's it going to do to things like the magistrate's early referral into treatment program? You know, you plead guilty. It's a precondition to being able to access the rehabilitation um, program that's available through the magistrate's court. But So you have to plead guilty to be able or be found guilty to be able to be eligible for the program, which is usually a 12-week <clears throat> program or can be extended. And it's designed so that you get rehabilitation um, support in the community pre-sentence 
Well, what's it going to do to programs uh, like that, which depend on someone pleading guilty, but also depend in their effectiveness and purpose on the person remaining on bail? I suppose it could be a special or exceptional circumstance justifying bail, but it's going to be a pretty big cohort of people that it, the parliament would have been aware of. It's worth noting that in Day, um, Justice Garling didn't decide the question of whether or not that infelicitous drafting led to what I think we all expect it will be read to mean, which mm. is that, you know, the, the special exceptional circumstances are in favour of um, <laughs> the Crown refusing bail. But he didn't decide it. His Honour didn't decide it um, because it was not required to finally interpret it for his decision. He gave some obiter to that effect. So I hope people run it just for the sake of it, you know. <laughs> Anyway, it's a miserable business and we've kind of the – I have been kind of thinking that maybe the law and order auction had calmed down from where it was 10 years ago, um, maybe with the exception of sexual offences that just happen to be changed every week. But it seems like it's back and worse than it's I ever think been. so. And it seems to be also happening in a way where Parliament reacts really quickly – to something that's going on in the media and just passes a law overnight, sometimes at, at literally in a session at 8 o'clock at night. We saw that recently with the laws that were changed in relation to protests mm. and civil disobedience being on roads and bridges and things where they just increased the penalties overnight and, and changed all changed the sort of regime to make it much more punitive without any meaningful community consultation or involvement in or any opportunity for for citizens to lobby their representatives on a on an issue mm. because it's just whipped through <clears throat> free think, kick that one though i think free kick for the government i mean election year well i people think- disrupting the public Lock Do you reckon it changes any votes, this stuff? I really doubt it. I, I reckon think if you're sitting in Lord traffic... it can as an issue, right? Like, if you've got perceptions of widespread gang violence, for example, and community concern over months and months is building, and then some, you know, election proposal is put to sort of respond to that, I get that that might change votes, particularly in key electorates, but this, does this really I don't change know. votes? Well, I don't know. It's, it's cat... It yeah, if you're sitting in traffic and you're going to work and someone's held up a bridge for six hours, it's catnip to Channel 7 and Channel 9. That I agree with, but I'm talking here about this oh, I don't amendment know. to 22B. I don't know. I agree oh, that, that climate stuff was politically very hot. That really cut through. But this stuff, oh, that, this is that, the minutiae of the criminal law to me. That Liberal government, it's just happy to let pedophiles out on the street. That's the narrative, isn't it? That's, And the real issue is, and this is true for oppositions of both sides for at least the time that I've been a lawyer, there is no narrative against the law and order narrative that anyone has developed that works politically. That's 100% and, true. And, you know, <clears throat> if that's something that lawyers out... If lawyers like us and lawyers out there who think that the law and order narrative is a huge problem, we really need to turn our minds to a counter-narrative that we might be able to shop to the politicians. Because I frankly think that many politicians do understand the nuance, if not of the law, the nuance of what they're doing and the fact that mm. they're just passing laws that... 
Fill the jails. Well, fill the jails and hurt their brothers and sisters and cousins and uncles and so on that will be subjected to these laws. There have been some... There has been some progress, though, I reckon, in New South Wales. If you look back over the 10 years of this government, I don't think that the law and order auction is as bad as it was in the 90s. And I think incarceration rates have been a bit tempered and ICOs and stuff have sort of come to the fore. So I don't think it's entirely kind of a regressive picture, but it's always a tinderbox, you know, and I think that's why both sides, they have to be responsible on the way that they deal with incarceration because it's politically a tinderbox, but the outcomes, if you go down this American path, the outcomes are totally disastrous and you turn around two or three decades later and you think, what have we done? We've, you know, destroyed whole segments of the community. We've spent many billions of dollars on incarceration. We've made crime worse. That's why it's That's so That's the counter-narrative. Important. You make crime Mass worse. Mass incarceration makes us less safe. Yeah. Because sending more people to jail, the destructive effect of that on communities actually changes norms and makes people less safe. That's, I think, where this type of provision is so dangerous is because it doesn't apply to pedophiles. Exactly. It applies to everyone. Can't you have a bail act for pedophiles? You know, it applies to the person... You could apply this provision just to serious sex offenders. And frankly, that's what they should have done. And it wouldn't cause that many problems if they did. Mm. Because most of those people, a lot of those people lose their bail upon conviction. And those who don't are a relatively small number. But they've chosen to be motivated by that but to apply it to a provision that's going to apply to hundreds of thousands of people, including is that an disadvantaged people in remote New South Wales. Is that laziness and an oversight? I just think it's, yeah, I think it's, it's partly a product of rushing it and not sending it to committee where you hear from experts who will talk about the actual effects of it. And these members of parliament don't know. They're not subject matter experts. And, uh, you know, I thought of the, the, the thought that you just expressed, Stephen, about the law and order auction sort of not being as bad now as it was 10 years ago. I had the same thought. And the thought that followed it is that there's just not that much left for sale. That's true. Right? A lot's been <laughs> it's done. It's so yeah. bad that mm. what's left. After recording this episode, the Court of Criminal Appeal again decided the question of whether Titus Day should remain on bail, ruling that he should, despite the recent change to the Bail Act, and so he remains at liberty pending the outcome of the sentencing proceedings. The Appeal Court also decided again whether Mr Van Gestel should remain on bail and decided that his bail should be revoked ahead of the sentencing hearing. In the course of deciding the case, the Court held that the use of the term will be sentenced to full-time imprisonment in the new Section 22B of the Bail Act suggests what is realistically inevitable as distinct from what may happen or is likely to happen. The court said, That does not mean that will involves a state of absolute certainty. That cannot be correct, since the task of the court as a bail authority is to make a forward-looking assessment of the future disposition of the sentence with respect to the convicted person based on materials which are unlikely to be complete. Okay, we're back after that fantastic break. What a great musical interlude. Moving on to the next topic... Stephen Lawrence is going to take it from here. Something to do with the High Court, Mr. Big Shot. <laughs> What's going on? So I'm going to talk about the the decision from the 8th of June this year of Alexander and Minister for Home Affairs in which the High Court struck down Section 36B of the Citizenship Act 2007 or the Australian Citizenship Act of 2007. 
they struck it down as unconstitutional. There's various judgments, but they struck it down uh, predominantly on the basis that the power to strip citizenship is in fact um, a judicial power because it amounts to criminal punishment and therefore under the separation of powers that is recognised in the Constitution can only be exercised by a Chapter 3 court um, and indeed could only have been exercised after a finding of criminal guilt for an offence. I actually appeared in the case. I was one of four barristers along with uh, David Hook, Daniel Reynolds and Sebastian Hartford Davis. The solicitor was Osmond Samin. Um, the clients uh, came to him, when I say clients, not the client himself, because Mr. Alexandra is uh, in a Syrian jail and has been for some years. But his family came to Osmond last year and said that they had received correspondence on his behalf, stripping him of citizenship. And um, it rang a bell with me because I think I'd read a an article by George Williams where he had talked about these new laws, which were first passed, I think, under Abbott and then they were reenacted under the under Turnbull. They've had sort of various manifestations, uh, but George Williams had written an article saying that he thought that there was a separation of powers problem with these laws. Interesting. That it was tantamount to criminal punishment. So, yeah, we sort of got together the team. We'd all appeared in case in the High Court of MZAPC about materiality. Uh, so we got the gang back together. There's a few interesting procedural things about how this case came to be. Um, was brought in the original jurisdiction of the High Court. So unlike um, most cases that go to the High Court, it wasn't an appeal from a lower court. We took advantage of Section 75.5, I think it is, of the Constitution, that allows anyone to go to the High Court and challenge the decision um, of a Commonwealth officer. And they took you on? They took us on, yep, absolutely. They said that they were opposing the orders that we sought. We then utilised a provision that allows an applicant in the original jurisdiction to state a case to the full court. And that's a provision that is normally used when a particular legal point is going to determine the case effectively. Um, so the case that was stated, there was a few of them, but the main sort of question was, is Section 36B uh, unconstitutional, either firstly on account of not being supported by our head of power um, in Section 51, which mm -hmm. obviously every Commonwealth law has to be, um, putting aside implied heads of power and so forth. Um, and the next question was whether Section 36B was unconstitutional on account of breaching the separation of powers. So this argument that um, it was criminal punishment to strip citizenship and criminal punishment under the Constitution, this is well established in cable and different cases, uh, can only happen as a consequence of a finding of criminal guilt. Can I just ask, Stephen, on the procedure, you go before a puny justice of the High Court and say, we want to state a case, yep. and if you convince that justice, then that, that justice will state the case. Is that effectively it? Yeah, that's correct. And in yeah. this case, we went before, I think it was Justice Stewart was allocated uh, the case originally. The other side didn't oppose a stated case. And in a case like this, they normally wouldn't because they would recognise that yep. it's a sort of foundational question that has to be determined. Mm. Um There'd been a fair bit of commentary, as I said, about this 
you know, provision and the other. There's a few different provisions in the part. So, yeah, the Commonwealth was pretty realistic in terms of recognising that there was a mm-hmm. substantial issue. A um, couple of other sort of interesting procedural things before we talk about the main things that were decided. Um, yeah, as I said, we have never met Mr Alexander. We're the legal representatives. We've been dealing with his family um, and the reason for that is that he went over to, firstly to Turkey, and then it seems on to Syria back in, I think it was 2013, told his family uh, that he was going over to get married. Uh, ASIO says that by the end or thereabouts of 2013, he'd become involved with uh, Islamic State. That uh, is something that was certainly not conceded in the case. Um, he ended up in uh, the custody um, of the Kurdish Syrian forces at the end of that sort of Islamic State period and was ultimately sentenced in a Syrian court to, I think, 10 or 15 years uh, in jail for terrorism offences. He told his lawyer in Syria, and this found its way into affidavit evidence in the High Court, that uh, he was tortured to essentially extract a confession. When he was arrested by the Kurdish officials, he was not in a prescribed area for the purpose of the criminal code, but he was alleged by ASIO to have participated in Islamic State and been in a prescribed area for the purpose of the criminal code, uh, which became relevant because the power created by Section 36B is conditioned basically on a few things, and there's a range of mandatory relevant considerations, but... For the power to be enlivened, a person has to have committed the fault elements of an offence in the terrorist part of the criminal code, basically. Mm -hmm. You don't have to commit the mental elements or the minister doesn't have to be satisfied that you've committed the mental elements, but you need to have committed the fault elements. And the offence they relied upon for Mr Alexander was that of entering a prescribed area, basically, mm. because whole to parts being of in Syria. a particular part of Syria yeah, at a particular basically. time. Yeah, which so it's means- an absolute liability for going to some place. In effect, yeah. And look, we mm. argued that in terms of for constitutional purposes, there not being an adequate basis to strip his citizenship according to any meaningful sort of sense of proportionality and reasonableness, mm. and we didn't succeed on those arguments, but. And part of the reason why was that uh, the section does require the minister to be satisfied that the person has repudiated allegiance Mm. and the person has done that through engaging in certain conduct, that it's in the public interest to strip citizenship. So the court was basically satisfied that there was enough in the section, assuming validity, which of course they weren't satisfied of, Mm. but there was enough in the section to create a circumstance where a decision-maker could reasonably be satisfied that a person had repudiated allegiance to Australia. So we didn't sort of win the case on that argument. Mm. Yeah, so we never met the client because he was in Syria. Um, And uncontactable at that point. He'd been rendered no consular assistance on account of the attitude of the government to him that he wasn't a citizen. And he also also had Turkish citizenship, didn't he? Yeah, yeah. So So that's a key kind of fact. Yeah. Yeah. So just in terms of the no contact with him, um, we 
ended up arranging for his sister to be appointed um, as a litigation guardian mm. for him. So the case was actually brought in his name but by his litigation yeah. guardian, his yeah, sister. That's right. yeah. mm, it's very interesting. And the circumstances of him being incommunicado kind of speak to the seriousness of the consequences of citizenship stripping because what was in the affidavit material was basically this, that he received his jail term in Syria he received um, a pardon from the president and he was about to be deported from Syria. We were instructed that in the first instance he would have gone to Lebanon and then he would have been flown home. To Australia. Yeah, that's right. Mm. Um, Then his citizenship was stripped. He went from effectively an immigration detention centre in Syria into a place called Branch 235, which is part of the Syrian national security establishment, was a national security prison apparently originally originally used for Palestinian people, um, of whom there's lots in Syria and the state sort of monitors them and they've been involved in groups in the past and so forth. So they apparently have their own special, special prison and apparently it seems certainly the timing is there as a direct consequence of citizenship stripping by Australia. He was put into branch 235. That was over a year ago now. He's never been heard from since. The family have grave concerns for him. So he's really um, in a difficult situation. And he couldn't go to Turkey for some reason, is that right? Yeah, so he's a Turkish citizen by virtue of the fact that his parents are Turkish citizens. He's an Australian-born citizen and that uh, became important in terms of the constitutional points because there was an issue about whether an Australian-born citizen could ever be an alien for the purpose of the Mm. constitution. Um, And we lost that point. Um, Yeah, but yeah, it's a Turkish dual citizen. And uh, Section 36B only applies to dual nationals. That's been a policy choice by the parliament, not for any sort of benevolent purpose, but I think mainly because international law makes it illegal uh, to render a person stateless. So the Australian government has had to restrain yeah, it's their not, activities. In not this out respect. of lack of trying. Exactly. <laughs> if they could have done it, I'm sure they would have done it. So, um, so, but why couldn't he go to Turkey? So Turkey and Syria don't have diplomatic relations, as I understand it. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if this is right, but I got the impression in the proceedings that uh, that Turkey wouldn't necessarily accept an Australian-born person who's just done five years for terrorism in Syria, turning up in their country. They wouldn't have any interest in receiving that person. Mm. So he's disappeared into this prison, for lack of a better word, and so there's some urgency, in effect, of figuring out whether or not he's entitled to consular assistance at a minimum, I would have thought. Yes. And, and you, yeah, go yeah, on. Yeah, the so question of urgency... You, so you got that? expedition. Yeah. So what we did in the first instance was we got a we searched around a few different organisations. Eventually got Amnesty International in London to give us a report on Branch Two Three Five and the conditions in jail and detention in Syria generally. They gave a very strong report, basically saying that he's at grave risk um, of death as a consequence of various types of mistreatment. We saw an expedition, which we got, I think, to some degree, but it still didn't progress that quickly. But in the course of argument, as the matter was reserved, uh, David, our senior counsel, asked the court to consider making orders first and giving reasons later, i.e. to speed things up. 
And I guess he made that, you know, submission or suggestion because the argument had clearly gone well and we had no doubt that we were going to win. That didn't happen and the matter took, I think, four, maybe five months uh, for orders to come, uh, orders and reasons. And Edelman, Justice Edelman said some things he in his judgment. He had something to say about this. Quite scathing. Do you want to mm. read that to us, Vicky? Mm. So this is at paragraph 177 of the judgment. Senior counsel for Mr Alexander politely requested that this court consider adopting the approach of pronouncing orders before reasons in order to facilitate expedition of the result of this case in light of these parlous circumstances of Mr Alexander referring to his situation in, in Syria. I would have readily acceded to that request. The justification for the request was significantly more compelling than many, perhaps any other instance in which this court has recently and properly taken such an approach. There was no suggestion at the oral hearing that any circumstance pointed against that proposed course. In any event, these reasons, like those of the other members of this court, were prepared very shortly after the hearing in order to facilitate an expeditious delivery of the orders. <laughs> that last sentence <laughs> is astonishing. That's it's a look behind the behind yeah. the curtain. Isn't so it? we had all drafted our judgments shortly after, and yet it took them four months. The only thing I can take from that is there's some sort of inbox in the High Court or in-tray in the High Court where maybe the person responsible for the administration of the court overall has to take matters from that inbox in order to have them listed or something like that, and that person has not seen fit to act uh, particularly quickly. Right. He's not... No, I won't say that. That's interesting. I mean, like, there is a public service backlog in all departments, I would imagine, at the moment. Have you seen the po- the passport office, for example? This case was, it was either the longest reserve decision or the next longest reserve decision by the time they gave their reasons. So it didn't proceed with any expedition at all. Mm. And clearly Justice Edelman was affronted by that. And mm. that's why he's put in there the contents of paragraph 177. I mean, we can't really say anything more about it except that it does seem extraordinary that there would be such (coughs) issues at stake that all members of the court would deliver their reasons promptly because of that. And then it seems months would then delay for no reason. It It seems inexplicable. And it's one of those things that is behind the kind of veil in the sense that the High Court is the apex court. There's no Mm. one examining its processes. I don't think we'll ever necessarily know, except if we sort of hear it around the traps. Hell of a comment. So, what did they decide? So, enough about procedural things. Let's talk (laughs) about the case. Yeah. So, there's... um, So, there are the two questions, right? Was there a head of power under the Constitution that allowed the law to be made? Yeah. And... Even if the answer to that is yes, did the doctrine of separation of judicial power enshrined in Chapter 3 of the Constitution operate to mean that the law was invalid and should be struck down? Yeah, look, that's the questions that they all they all pretty much ultimately decided. We had a couple of other arguments, including some arguments relying on the franchise, the electoral franchise, the right to vote and so forth 
and we basically argued that because citizenship stripping interferes with the franchise and interferes with other things that we relied upon, that there needs to be a substantial threshold, basically, that has mm-hmm. to be met. But they didn't decide that point, sort of, in essence. Yeah. They didn't need to. They didn't need to, yeah, yeah. And, yeah, the plurality um, and Gagler um, make up for they decided the aliens point and the separation of powers point. So that's key for the Chief Justice, Keane, Gleeson, and then Gagler added yeah. to that. Yeah, that's right. Uh, Justice Gordon didn't decide the aliens' power. She decided it um, on separation of powers. Edelman did decide aspects of the aliens' power stuff in the sense that he was satisfied that there was a power to strip citizenship on the basis of non-allegiant conduct. But he said a whole lot of things that were pretty much obita about all of the problems in all of the aliens' jurisprudence, and he would have totally sort of undone it all. Justice Stewart found that uh, the law was constitutional, so he was out there on his own. Mm. Um, but in terms of the reasoning um, of the plurality and Gagler, so I might just, to give that a bit of context, just talk a bit about Section 36B. So 36B, in a relevant sense, says the minister may determine in writing that a person aged 14 or older ceases to be an Australian citizenship if the Ministry is satisfied that, A, the person has engaged in conduct specified in subsection 5 while outside Australia, Uh, the conduct demonstrates that the person has repudiated their allegiance to Australia and it would be contrary to the public interest for the person to remain an Australian citizen. So that's the main preconditions in terms of the contents of subsection five um i won't read it all but for the purpose of paragraph 1a the conduct is any of the following and then it lists basically a whole lot of terrorism offenses that appear in the criminal code which relevantly for the purpose of mr alexander includes h engaging in foreign incursions and recruitment and that's an expression, foreign incursions and recruitment, that takes meaning from Section 119.2 of the Criminal Code, which makes it an offence for an Australian citizen to enter or remain in a declared area in a foreign country. And then, as I said before, it's not necessary for the Minister to be satisfied of the fault element, uh, just the physical element. A couple of observations about Section 36B. So just to wind that back, the Minister didn't need information from ASIO that he was allegedly part of ISIS or participating with ISIS, all the minister needed to trigger the citizenship stripping power was he's been in this particular part of Syria. That's right, strictly, but I don't think you could have been reasonably satisfied of the repudiation of allegiance if there was no nexus with ISIS. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah, and that sort of becomes apparent in uh, the discussions about repudiation and at what point is that a kind of constitutionally permissible concept. Mm-hmm. So a couple of observations about 36B because it shows how extraordinary the power is. So it can only be exercised by the minister personally. 
the rules of natural justice or procedural fairness do not apply and you don't have to give any reasons for decision. So, so no right to be heard. No right, no right, to, be right heard. to put on any evidence about no. the circumstances or contradict no right to know what the intelligence is or information that's being provided to the minister and the minister doesn't have to tell you why. Yeah. Although the minister has to determine in writing. What is what does that even mean? Oh, this is my I'm just going to start going on a draft down. in. They it's basically a certificate. So I've I've seen it in this case. It just Alexander says Alexander is not a citizen anymore. Can I Yeah, your citizenship ceased on X date. Just and then as it's got a signature on it. My drafting, I'm going to go on drafting rampages from now on. You don't determine something in writing. You make a determination in your mind, right? Yeah. yeah. Oh, anyway, sorry, bugbear. Yeah. So, under 36E2, uh, the minister does have to have regard to a range of considerations in determining whether to make a determination under subsection 36B1. You've got to take into account the severity of the conduct of the conduct to which the determination relates, the degree of threat posed by the person to the Australian community, the age of the person, if under 18 the best interest of the child as a primary consideration, whether the person is being or is likely to be prosecuted in relation to conduct to which the determination relates, the person's connection to the other country of which the person is a national or citizen and the availability of the rights of citizenship of that country to the person. Australia's, uh, Australia's international relations and any other matters of public interest. So there's a broad array of considerations and those were assessed in the decisions when the court was looking at the question of whether this is punishment. And there's an interesting debate um, um, in the various judgments about what is punishment, what is the purposes of punishment, is some notion of the protection of the community a different purpose to that of criminal punishment? Mm. Um, and Justice Gagler's got s some interesting stuff around that. Yeah, I thought Justice Gagler's decision was quite interesting on how you determine purpose and the constitutional implications for that because... Even though he says, look, I agree the alien's power supports this and I agree that separation of judicial power enshrined in Chapter 3 of the Constitution has been infringed and so, you know, he didn't really need to go any further and he, and he says, I agree with the reasons of Kiefer, Keen and Gleeson on those matters. He said, I, I want to make another judgment anyway because I want to respond to a particular submission put by the Commonwealth uh, at the forefront of their argument that Section 36, capital B, does not infringe the doctrine of the separation of judicial power, being a submission that's, that the submission was that someone who ceases to be an Australian citizen by operation of a ministerial determination made under 36B is not, quote, punished in the sense in which that term is used to describe an exercise of judicial power consequent upon a finding of criminal guilt because the, quote, purpose of the section is to, quote, protect the Australian community from persons found to have engaged in terrorist conduct. And then he goes into this analysis of, well, you can construe legislative purpose in a really general way mm -hmm. so as to basically render it meaningless you can construe it in a really narrow way in relation to the particular mischief that's at play that a particular P 
piece of legislation is attempting to address. And then he goes into this discussion about, well, what is the purpose of the criminal law and protection of the community is recognised as a particular purpose of criminal punishment. So to talk about a law as being for the purpose of the protection of the Australian community, that doesn't really answer that question of whether or not it infringes the separation of powers enshrined in the Constitution. But it's quite it's quite an interesting kind of deep dive into looking at how do you determine the purpose of a piece of legislation and how do you determine that in a way that is constitutionally significant. Mm. It's it's really nice to see the High Court defending, asserting the bounds of judicial power. I think there's been many decisions the other way in mm. the last couple of in the last ten years or so and it's really nice to see them doing that. Mm. Um Clearly, frankly. So just on the sort of constitutional issues in terms of heads of power, so our main argument in relation to the aliens' power was that this concept of alienage is a constitutional concept and there's lots of authority for that proposition and it's not open to the parliament to legislate with respect to aliens if the category of person that they're legislating for is not capable of meeting the description of alien. That was basically our argument. Mm. So in the facts of Mr Alexander's case, we said he's an Australian-born citizen, he's born in Australia, his parents are Australian, citizenship, are Australian citizens, he cannot be an alien. So this law, to the extent it purports to apply to him, is unconstitutional. And we lost that argument pretty resoundingly so Um, did love get yeah tossed out not that's still being considered i think i think the high court might be reserved on something that's trying to overturn love yeah because had he been aboriginal or indigenous then he would not have met the description of alien yeah Yeah, that's for sure love under love yeah maybe the commonwealth would have tried to relitigate that point again yeah in this case yeah Yeah. i mean we sort of lost this point on two bases. One was, look, the fact that he's Australian-born does not mean that he can't be an alien. And there's this interesting discussion in the case law around alienage, which talks about the fact that as a head of power, the alien's power is kind of different, and Edelman rejects this idea, but it's kind of different in the sense that it's a head of power concerned with the question of legal status as compared to a head of power concerned with, say, lighthouses or something that is a physical object. And what some of the cases sort of say is that because it's a head of power concerned with the legal status, it's up to the parliament to determine what that legal status means. Which so I think it's a is broader power. That's is basically a bit of a. I argument. feel like it's a bit of a cop out. Well, that's exactly what Edelman says. Well, yeah. because if you look at the Section Forty Four cases that were brought before the parliament, that was clearly. Uh, uh, the the High Court having a say over what exactly allegiance to a foreign power. Like yeah. It's not. It's a different argument. It's not but beyond the it's High not Court, aliens, right? But, to... but but yeah, yeah. That's what I would mm. imagine. Yeah. Good anyway, point, Jim. Have you done your constitutional law exam yet? I have. 
Okay. And I got a distinction. Thank you very much. Well <laughs> done. That's fantastic. We'll be grilling you Please on don't. What is it? <coughs> tax, succession, and public, public international, international law and fun things. Great. Uh, and unfun things for me. So, just on that point, so this is obviously a complex judgment, but at paragraph 63, in summary, in relation to the first issue, it should be held that it is open to the parliament under section 5519 to create a status of citizenship that allows for the exclusion of persons from membership of the body politic. It is not an abuse of language to say that a person whose conduct is inimicable to Australia's interests may, by law of the Commonwealth, forfeit the rights of citizenship conferred by the parliament and thereby become an alien. So you can become an alien even if you couldn't previously have been described in that way. So that's a quick summary of that issue. In terms of the breach of the separation of powers that the court found that the law occasioned, it turned a lot on discussion and analysis of the consequences for the citizen of stripping. Um, The judgments go through a lot of historical case law around, you know, exile and banishment being Mm. a classical form of punishment. It's always been regarded as punishment. We don't really think of that as being part of our regime of punishment, but this obviously is an example of it. Yep, yep. And, I mean, what the plurality says is this law is retribution for engaging in conduct that the parliament says is inimical to your obligations of citizenship. It's to be seen as retribution. Um, And that's where this issue comes up around Justice Stewart saying, well, I don't think it's punitive. I think it has as its purpose of protection of the community. Um, And Gagler obviously engages with that in the part that you talked about, Flicky. Um, So, you know, this is one of those areas where there's not really a bright line. Like the High Court was looking at whether in effect, in purpose, this is criminal punishment and they looked at what is actually being done. It's a stripping of citizenship. They look at uh, the consequences for the citizen and they say basically that in many ways it's worse than being locked up. It's worse than other types of criminal punishment because it completely destroys your status in organised society. That Mm. is punishment. It kind of doesn't get a lot more complicated than that. Mm. In their view, it was criminal punishment. And they contrasted the Section 36B power to another power that exists in the same part where the minister can strip citizenship after a conviction for a terrorist offence. And what's not clear to me is whether they're saying that that section, I think it's 36D, um, is constitutional. Mm. Because I would have thought another argument would be that, that not only does it have to be a punishment imposed as a consequence of criminal guilt... But a court should be imposing that punishment, right? Not the minister. Surely. Mm. Yeah. I mean, surely that's all part of this cable doctrine. Mm. Well, it's like the minister well, It's a saying, judicial function. It's a judicial function, yeah. The minister decides you're going to do an extra year. Yeah. Surely that's Though we sort of have function. that, don't we? Oh, no, the court does that. The court do, do, still does it, but applies. the attorney applies. The attorney applies, the, the, yeah. Yeah. And that, yeah. That, I mean, anyway. Mm. So, look, that's a bit of a summary. I've sort of focused on the plurality... Uh, as I said, Justice Gagler um, agreed with them, but there's also good stuff in Justice Gordon, Justice Edelman, and then there's Justice Stewart, who, yeah, it's going to be interesting. He's a pretty new appointment, obviously. This is a pretty pretty radical judgment by him, I think, and it's going to be interesting to see what it 
means going forward in terms of his jurisprudence. Nice win, Stephen, and an important one. Mm. It's good to get a cost order, you know, in this sort of matter for once. (laughs) (laughs) My other forays to the High Court have not been as successful. All right, so ladies and gentlemen, we are back with our final topic of the night, and it's a it's an interesting one. It's a bit of a, a bit of a different territory for us today. Uh, Wigs going to offering be offering something that's quite interesting from what I see. I oh, could because be normally from, we're not interesting. <laughs> I mean, like, yeah, sometimes <laughs> I need to be prodded away uh, in order to bring the. No, look, this is going to be great. So, shall what? I please shall introduce what this fantastic thing is in my hands? All right, so we're going to take listeners to the <clears throat> local court sitting at Dubbo. Yay, Dubbo. Circa February 2022. Thursday, the 10th of February 2022. I've been there. Let's go. We've all been there. We've all been there. We've all been <laughs> there. We've all um, been a young ALS solicitor in Dubbo in the local court. Yeah. I haven't, but yes, I'll, I will be in this role play <laughs> and I can't wait. So we're going to take listeners right into the courtroom and the way we're going to do it is um, by it's a role acting play. out yeah. the transcript. We've got a script. Of certain proceedings. And just to position our listeners, um, the magistrate is going to be voiced by Manny. Um, he was always aiming a bit higher than the magistracy, but oh well. sorry, mate. A bit higher. There is no higher <laughs> calling than the magistracy. <laughs> Shout out to all our magistrate listeners. Yeah, we love you. They do the hardest job. <laughs> all of you who they pretend, do. pretend like yeah. a very hard job. Yes. They have to fill out those forms. They should get an extra hundred grand to have to fill out those forms for every man. I anyway. remember being in a courtroom <laughs> once observing and the magistrate looking at me going, great, I was about to go home for the day and asking me what my matter was. And I said, I'm just observing. And just the relief on their face <laughs> just went, oh, thank God. Yes. Well, today, Jim, you are going to play the court officer. Yes. You have a very big role. Am I a member of the PSA? Uh, probably. <laughs> okay, good. Probably. All right. Stephen, you're the accused. Huh, typical. That'd be right. And I'm going to play the ALS solicitor who appeared for you, Stephen. I'm going to represent you. So this comes from a decision of the New South Wales Supreme Court that was recently handed down it's the decision of the Director of Public Prosecutions and Peckham, 2022, New South Wales Supreme Court 713, a decision of Justice Hamill. And we should mention one other player, but she's not here and she doesn't have a speaking role. Um, but in her absence, uh, the prosecutor, the police prosecutor, is going to be played by <laughs> Natasha Robinson. <laughs> A good friend of the show. And I, and I note, um, uh, why not? Paul Cranny's in the gallery observing. Yeah, Paul's in the gallery. Thanks, yeah. Paul, for your attendance. So, <laughs> Shout out just to He so liked that, that I shouted out to him last week. <laughs> just so that we can put this in context, um, what was the case about? It's a criminal case in the Dubbo local court. And the reason we have a decision in the Supreme Court in relation to it is because as a result of what happened, but what you're about to hear happened, the DPP appealed against the sentence disposition that was imposed by you, Manny, mm-hmm. and they appealed under provisions of the Crimes Appeal and Review Act, Section 561A, and also in the alternatives sought judicial review relief and we'll 
get into the nuts and bolts of that um, when we talk about the decision and the relief that was ultimately granted. So it was basically a summary hearing gone wrong and the prosecution appealed it to the Supreme Court. That's the sort of very um, high-level summary. Let's take it away. I'm, I'm curious. I note my friend isn't in the room at the moment. There is a fresh custody downstairs. It's in for contravening AVO. Can he be brought on screen? We don't have... How have you got papers and we don't have papers? I think I've annoyed them enough that they sent them through to me, Your Honour. All right, well, we'll see. Can you get them, Jim? But we'll get him on the screen. We're going to finalise it? Yes, please, Your Honour. Okay. How should that be done? The defence would be asking for a fine-only punishment. There's no violence? No violence. Simply just at her house where he's not supposed to be under the AVO. Okay. Seems like there was a bit of a misunderstanding. However, I've made that crystal clear to Mr Peckham. Good. We need the prosecutor. We don't really. (laughs) The transcript then records that there was a general discussion that ensued whilst waiting. Yes. Audiovisual link commenced at 2.44pm then. There he is. Uh, Peckham before the court, Your Honour. Thank you. Has someone telephoned Natasha? You're welcome. Has someone telephoned Natasha? Now, Mr Peckham's not subject to anything at the moment, is he? No, he's not, Your Honour. He's not awaiting anything? No, he's not. Okay. On my reading of the record, it seems that he's been out with no balance of parole to serve in the community. Since when? That was since the 11th of last year in October October last year, the 24th. And who's he been with? What's her name? It's Wendy. Wendy. Your Honour. Yeah. Your Honour. It says not transcribable there, just to break out. Uh, anyway, uh, you know the rules, Mr Peckham. I know that, Your Honour. I do understand and... I mean, you get a, you end up getting arrested, you end up being bail refused, and here you are again. Yes, Your Honour. You've just got to comply. Yeah, I will. We're just waiting for the prosecutor. We're waiting for some papers. When are we getting papers, Jim? Are you working, Mr Peckham? Yeah, yeah, yeah. What you... Yeah, I've got an interview uh, in Dubbo next week. I've already got it organised, yeah, Monday next week. And all the, and also they, JobLink Plus has provided me a new phone, all of that stuff. And also I got my L's, my licence, and things were really working at that point, Your Honour. All right. Well, I'll tell you what I'm going to do. Give you a break. Record a conviction and send you on your way. But I can tell you what, if you come back again... I know, Your Honour, I accept that. I'm sorry, I understand. I can recall. We've had these, We yeah, we've had these conversations before, haven't we? Yes, and I'm very, very sorry, all right. No, it's my fault. I know, I know you know. All right, but see, this isn't going to happen again. I'm not going to... I won't deal it like that. You'll probably find yourself back in custody. So it's a conviction recorded, no other action is taken, so you're good to go. Thank you, Your Honour. See you. Thank you, Mr Peckham. Thank you. Um, Your Honour, could I be excused to attend to the next person in custody? See how you go. Thank you. Um, Court's adjourned. I don't have any problem with this, by the way. <laughs> I really don't. It's you very know. efficient. Very efficient. It's like very, Judge Judy. Yeah, I mean, you know. It's total. It's like Judge Judy's transcript. Oh.
Oh, no, prosecutors cause a lot of trouble in the courtroom. There's I, no doubt about it. I am <laughs> old enough to remember when prosecutors did not make submissions mm. on sentence. They shouldn't, frankly, be making submissions on sentence. Okay, but let's just wind back a little bit and fill in the yeah, gaps. Of what, 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 what the problem should be there, though. What, <laughs> so, I mean, look, I accept that. <laughs> the agreed position in the Supreme Court was that the magistrate didn't have any paperwork. So they didn't have a court attendance notice. They didn't have any initiating process. They didn't have a fact sheet. So there were no facts upon which the case was determined. They didn't have the criminal record. So there there was no evidence or initiating process before the court. Um, No plea of guilty was actually entered in the proceedings. And the prosecutor was not present and not given any opportunity to be heard. And the ALS lawyer told the magistrate, look, the prosecutor's not here. And She did um, a good job, I thought. She did an excellent job. Yeah, Yeah. and look, she... I thought the court officer did all right. The court officer was (laughs) exemplary. She left that courtroom with the impression that what had happened was just really a foreshadowing of what was going to happen formally in front of the prosecutor um, and that, you know, the matter hadn't actually been finalised to sentence uh, and it happened, as we can see, very quickly uh, and in that very informal way. Mm. Um, but there are there are a few kind of quite interesting legal points to take from this. Um, just in defence of the magistrate, okay, not in like a full-throated way. But I think the transcript does reveal some of the good things about the local court in the sense that he's trying to do the right thing. He's taking a pretty benevolent view, I think, of the person. Um, He's being polite and courteous to everybody. A degree of sort of informality and expedition is really important in the local court. But that's probably all you can say good about it. Um, like this, he's just crossed a whole lot of lines that you just can't. Mm. You just can't cross. You know, you've got to have evidence. You've got to have a plea of guilty. You've got to have each you've side got to have there. The charge. Charge. <laughs> the, the court attendance notice that summons as the person to appear before the court. That's the initiating process. Mm. You've got to have that. Mm. I don't know. I don't look. Why? <laughs> why? <laughs> uh, leaving aside that the law says you have to. As a matter of you've got to have evidence, though, right? Do you? Yeah, like, you well, don't you have to know what they've you, done. But you'd be you. Did he get anything wrong? That's an interesting question. Do you know? Right? Flick, have you read the? So the the case was remitted from the Supreme Court back to the local court, and that was on account of quite an interesting situation in terms of how um, the Supreme Court was able to determine the matter. So as I said at the beginning, the DPP brought the proceedings in two different ways. The first way that they brought it was an appeal under Section 56.1a of the Crimes Appeal and Review Act, which is a statutory appeal um, that a prosecutor um, can bring against a sentence uh, on a point of law. In the alternative, they um, sought judicial review under Section 69 of the Supreme Court Act, 
and had some grounds that then related to both of those um, avenues, the grounds were failing to afford procedural fairness to the police prosecutor by hearing the proceedings against the defendant in the absence of the police prosecutor and without adequate notice to the police prosecutor, determining the proceedings in a manner contrary to Section 190 of the Criminal Procedure Act and failing to give adequate reasons for sentence imposed, the sentence that was imposed pursuant to Section 10, capital A of the Crime Sentence Procedure Act, which is the conviction without any further penalty. So we don't even know why the guy was there. Or the, I'm assuming it's a guy. Uh, yeah, it was a male, Mr. male accused, course, Mr yes. Peckham. Um, so all that the magistrate knew about why he was there was because his solicitor said that it was for contravenient AVO. Oh, sorry. Yeah. Um, which is the case, without violence. Um, so the matter went up to the Supreme Court and um, Jeremy Stiles, who's the one of the trial advocates at the ALS, um, appeared for Mr Peckham and conceded that there'd been error and that there should be relief granted. But And there wasn't much kind of in dispute about what had happened or... Um, Nothing really in controversy about that. But there was a question about what should the Supreme Court actually do. And there was a quite a strong um, impetus, um, a, a desire to be able to finalise the matter and kind of finish it. And Justice Hamill, you know, wanted to be able to finally determine the matter. Um, but there were some roadblocks to that in terms of the powers that the Supreme Court had and how that could be um, determined because the appeal under Section 56 of the Crimes Appeal and Review Act, the statutory appeal, was not a de novo or an appeal where there could be fresh evidence. And because the court below had literally no paperwork, no evidence, um, the Supreme Court couldn't determine the matter because the Supreme Court had no power to determine facts and there was there was nothing on which the Supreme Court could determine facts, wow. um, even by inference. So the parties, Jeremy put on these submissions and um, David Kell, who appeared on the other side, when asked about it, basically said what Mr Stiles said um, is the answer, which is that the relief should be granted under the judicial review um arm and that that should involve remitter. Hmm. What does that mean? Um, sending it back to the local court uh-huh, to be yep, determined yep. properly hmm. in the local court. Okay, yeah, right. So is there any hint about the evidence sort of disclosed by the judgment in terms of like was he off track the magistrate in the assumptions that he made about the matter or is that not clear? So the the court attendance notice and the fact sheet were in the solicitor's affidavit in the Supreme Court, um, but they weren't... It's not sort of gone through. No, mm. and, and it wasn't a basis on which the Supreme Court could, could f- make fa- findings of mm. fact. Um, but, look, my expectation would be that when this matter is redetermined by the local court that the same result is highly likely... Mm. What, is that right? They won't show up again. 
I mean, the, the, Natasha, the same, get your shit together. The same ultimate disposition. Um, so why do we that, think this happened? Do you reckon he commonly? Died? I, I, I don't appear hardy at all in the local court in Dubbo. Do you think that he commonly deals with matters ex parte in that way? Or? It seems that his honour had knowledge of this offender, mm. right? Because he says, you know, I've, we've had these conversations before and so on. Um, and he's on his honour's busy clearing a busy list. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I mean, look, I, I get it. <laughs> I get. I love Maddie's defence of this. No, <laughs> you know, I just. I, I look. Surely the prosecutor should have been there. Hmm. It's odd that a prosecutor would leave a local court magistrate without a prosecutor yeah, in the I room. About that as well. It's very Where odd in my experience. Who knows? Well, mm. the the prosecutors are just next door at the police station. Like it wouldn't have taken. It was on AVL, by the way. This wasn't it. We should we should note that. Oh, what the whole thing the was whole thing AVL. was on AVL. Okay, so no, hang whole... on. The accused was on AVL. We're... I think it was an AVL court. Sorry, yeah, yeah. that's correct. The uh, ALS okay. solicitor appeared by AVL. The oh, accused gosh. appeared by AVL. I'm not a cat. <laughs> and I just, you yeah, know. Yeah, so. Can we, do it now? Can we now do the script of the police prosecutor finding out that the matter's already been heard? Have we got that script? It'd be good to know the backstory, actually. So yeah. why wasn't that? Done. Why wasn't it relisted in front of his honour? Well, he would have probably had had no power to deal with it. He would have been functus. Well, you might have made the argument that your honour's not functus because functus is not a swearger. You might have made the argument that it's not (laughs) that he's not functus because he didn't have the paperwork in front of him. He'd he'd made orders though. Yeah, I reckon he dealt with it. Well, I don't know, but look, I just I, I think that there's a problem with the local court. Uh, in that magistrates are not empowered to deal with summary matters or matters being dealt with summarily, quickly and easily and on the basis of their judgment, you know? Yeah, you but, but this you, this could have happened in about the same time properly. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm with Manny. There should okay. be like the judge judification of the local court. <laughs> Where you just churn and burn. It should be drive-through. No, but there's a reason why we have a concept of procedural fairness. It's because it actually is linked to substantive fairness. Yeah, but what's the Crown doing running this if if it's just going to end up in the same result? Chewy Bono, why have we expended all of this money to, to chastise a magistrate who's having running... A COVID list and has no doubt a really stressful list in front of him. Well, like, on paper, though, is don't that why we've done this? Oh, time. don't do that again, Your Honour. Like, come on. What do we think of the catchwords? Oh, what are the catchwords? Functus. So this is another judgment where Massive Justice fuck up has some pretty choice. Okay, catchwords. Choice here. Criminal catchwords. law procedure, radical departure from orthodoxy, <laughs> proceedings a travesty, entire proceedings conducted in absence of prosecutor, three minutes. Prosecutor not notified of sentencing hearing. Where magistrate? Stop making me laugh. Where magistrate aware of absence of prosecutor but chose to continue. Transcript must be seen to be believed. Denial of procedural fairness. Ground of appeal upheld. (laughs) I tell you what, this does show though, a that anyone can make a mistake. But if you're a judicial officer, you're making your decisions in a public forum. There's a transcript. You make this kind of mistake, you run the risk of, you know, Justice Hamill catchwords and everyone will be very unforgiving because of the nature of the position. 
Yeah. But in reality, it's just a mistake. And as he did it, I'm sure he knew I shouldn't be doing this, but it's the same result that I would impose anyway. I'm just going to deal with this and get through the list. So we need to be a little bit understanding, I think. Oh, and, you know, one of the catchwords we didn't get to was massive workload of magistracy. And I think we need Mm. to really recognise... It's a crushing job, and particularly in the bush, it's isolating. You're expected to do just mountains of work and churn through so many cases. It's just extraordinary. It's. I just see this as like I have a big thing about discretion, and how it's been driven out of the law or has been driven out of the law, and this is a prime example of that on many levels. So the magistrate has, prob- has well has misused his discretion in the sense he's made this decision in the absence of the prosecutor. This person who's been charged by the police, why have they been charged in the circumstances where nothing's going to come of it? Why have they been bail refused where nothing's going to come of it? Because the policy says for the police, if you've got a contravene over you, you mm. breach them and you bail refuse them, right? Why has he been put before the court? Why have this paperwork taken so long mm. to get to the magistrate? I mean, we you don't. Know? That's the problem, though, with dealing with a case without evidence, because then you get opinion, stereotype, assumption. Yeah. You decide that it's a consensual breach that warrants no punishment. Whereas, what I mean, what was the reality of this case? I don't know, but the reality of this case could have been that there's a terrified former partner sitting at home who didn't want him there. You just don't know, right? You don't know. That's you can't right. take this sort of benevolent view, I don't think. Mm. Well, do we know? Have, have you read the affidavit, Fleet? No, I haven't. Yeah. So. And what happened to the court officer? <laughs> the court officer was the subject of disciplinary action, but they're a member of the PSA. Oh, the PSA fine stuck then. up for their rights fine and then. they were vindicated. <laughs> oh, I love it, Stephen. <laughs> to be absolutely clear, no court officer was suggested to have done anything wrong. Was yeah. the, was the but anyone who's interested in this kind of quite neat area of the law about when you go up to the Supreme Court and you seek relief by way of a statutory appeal um, or in the alternative judicial review... You should ask Jeremy Styles for a copy of his submissions mm, because they right. are kind of really great in terms of teasing out that issue and he um, he did a really good job in couching the arguments and why, even though it's not the ordinary course, judicial review relief was um, the preferable course in this particular case, preserved the party's right to um, appeals, um, there was the issue about no evidence being able to, um, no evidence being before the court, no fact finding power being the case. There being no remittal power if um, the statutory appeal route was used, and um, yeah, I, I think it's quite useful. One of the kind of key parts of his argument was about how where procedural unfairness is present, a remittal power is something that is something that should be preferred in terms of um, relief that's granted and that will often involve using a judicial review relief rather than a statutory appeal. Although, of course, some statutory appeals have a remittal power. Sounds like a lot of red tape. I I noticed that the, the local court was joined as a defendant but the magistrate wasn't. 
joined as a defendant? Yeah, so there's a practice now. Mm. I forget. Oh, it ha- came up in Lawson and Dunleavy, and that was one of the comes last out of the UCPR cases that you don't join. Where we you don't join the the individual named the magistrate, magistrate and yeah. then <clears throat> Crown solicitors sort of got onto this procedural point where if you try to do that now, they'll they'll write to you and say actually you've misnamed the proceedings and really it should be the local court and the, the magistrate is not to be named. Yeah. Is that because the, the magistrate doesn't exercise the power but the local court does? It's just that they're not a proper party under the UCPR. There's a, just a sp- specific provision right. that says the second defendant or respondent will be the court, the first respondent will be the party affected, i.e. the police or whatever. Has that been litigated or it's just their position? Yeah, it's been litigated in this sense that I pleaded a couple wrongly when I was at the ALS yeah. and we just had to get them amended in the Supreme Court because the other side took the point. Uh, but Lawson and Dunleavy, which we started, uh, Flicky, that was incorrectly named. It shouldn't that's have right. Dunleavy in the we name. Shouldn't, that's yeah. right. That's what I was saying. But that's it just one went of the through last the keeper. ones, but it went through to the keeper. Yeah. The wisdom out west when I was there used to be you name, name the magistrate shame. first name and the first shame. defendant. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> name and shame. Yeah. Well, it's a good sort of behaviour modification strategy. Like, if you keep doing the wrong thing, there will be a case that will live for eternity in the law books with your name attached to it. I await that fate. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, in a sense, that's what troubles me about this, is that I don't think the magistrate... I, I get the problems with what happened, but I just don't know that this was necessary the humanity shines through the transcript like the humanity of the situation he's engaging with this person he knows this person he's an experienced magistrate he has a strong sense that he knows how the matter would play out he just decided to be quick about it but he transgressed these fundamental rules but you could tell he was trying to do the right thing right yeah Yeah. if there was a judge duty act he would be saved under the judge duty act All right, so welcome back. We are ending the show now with a little thing we like to call fun things. Uh, We've got some fantastic fun things lined up for you. Felicity, I believe you're first with the fun thing. Thank you. And you're joined by a special guest in the studio tonight. Very special guest has just entered the studio. Who's this young man? He's my husband. Oh, congratulations. (laughs) So that's your fun thing. It's my fun thing. I got married. Well done. To um, a very big fan of the show. In fact, before we ever met. Yes, tell this story. Before we ever met, he listened to the wigs. Are Are you serious, Ed? True. You came across the wigs before you guys even met. That's true. Okay, <laughs> it's, for the purposes of the story, it's true. <laughs> no, it is true. No, uh, yeah, we, we um... pull up a mic, sir. Get in there. <laughs> uh, yeah, so I discovered the wigs via a tweet by Michaela Whitbourne. Hey, um, previous guest, friend of the on show. The exact there same day that I had matched with a certain Felicity Graham. Hey, on uh, on a certain dating app. There you go. Like, well, that's a bit of a coincidence. This uh, person's in into criminal defence and police accountability, and there's this Felicity Graham in this podcast. I wonder if they're the same person. Can't be. Wow. Can't be. It's a double algorithmic match. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. And the rest yeah. is history. So, did you guys have a great? Was it a fantastic wedding? Everything good? Fantastic. We had the best. Good time. weather. I think you just beat the rainstorms oh. that were. 
Yeah, so Is we had right? to have a, a sort of quick adjustment to the location of the yes, wedding. Yes, okay, yep. Um, we moved it from the paddock to the this amazing... Cinema theatre um, in Dungog. Nice. Which is, yeah, the James Theatre. It's the oldest still operating Mm. cinema in Australia. Still operating, cool. Still operating. It's really, it's a really cool building. And yeah, so we, yeah, we had a great time. Awesome. A really great time. Great. And great weather. Good work, Ed. That's great. After weeks of rain that meant the. Great weather. I know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, good. Excellent. Well, that's great. Well, I guess, Steve, well, congratulations to you two. Look at you. Um, Stephen <laughs> Lawrence, I mean, does your th- how do you top that? Mate? Yeah, I can't top that. Yeah, I think my fun thing is also the wedding. Yeah, well, yeah, the wedding is fantastic. Um, I almost had to seek injunctive relief in the Supreme Court ahead of Stephen's speech. Yeah, right. Actually, Why? yeah, what was really fun how bad was, was antagonising <laughs> and scaring Felicity about what I was going to say in the speech, <laughs> including in the speech by referring to veiled things that I knew would flip her out. <laughs> <laughs> that only she would understand. And then I said at one point in the speech, you've got a very worried look on your face, Felicity. <laughs> <laughs> and then I said, and guess what, Felicity? You can't interrupt me. It's not like the wigs. Oh. It's not a recording of the wigs. <laughs> Oh, we, we can't cut this in post. Well, look, fair enough. Uh, Manuel Kirkasharian. Well, I, I had the pleasure of being at that very same Everyone's wedding. Everyone's choosing the wedding. So, there it we was go. amazing. It was honestly, it was one of the best weddings I've ever been to. The ceremony was fantastic and moving and not trite in the way that so often I find modern wedding ceremonies to be trite. And what a party. Like, just... Both. Oh, mate, both, you're rubbing right. it in. Yeah. I would have been in attendance, but I had a COVID sick family member, so I apologise. But uh, you were yes. greatly missed. Ringo. I'm sorry yeah. that I. It sounds like it was an amazing uh, venture. Um, do you guys going to take some breaks, some time off? What's going on? Mm, we're going to have a holiday back up north in Lennox Head in January. Okay, that's what you're going to do. Yep. Nice one. Cool. Yeah, but we're both back at work already. Already. Mm. Never, uh, no rest of the no week. The there you How go. How about you, Jim? What's your uh, fun thing? Well, yeah, you know, I, well, having a baby. Yay. Yes, that's my awesome. fun thing. So we're announcing it. We're due, we're due January twenty eighth, which nice is actually one. my wife's birthday as well. So we'll see. It's great. Congratulations to you, you and Nick. Thank that's you. Really yes. exciting. Yes. So that's going to happen. So yeah, twenty twenty three weeks. Let's do it. Let's do it. We made it through without swearing. No, we f***ing didn't. <laughs> <laughs> that was Jim for the record. Yeah, that was Jim. Yeah. The of the chest. So we'll see you next month, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you for tuning in. Thank you. We're out. Thanks for listening. Please like The Wigs on Facebook at The Wigs Podcast. Don't forget to rate and review on iTunes. This podcast was brought to you by Minimal Productions, produced by Jim Mintz.